and and I and I think you know very earlier on, Mark, I like I liked how you picked up on the fact that as much as we are all passionate teachers at a teaching focused institution, it's not just the teaching. You're still asked to do those other things, right? And balancing that, you know, is the key. The Digital to Learn podcast is dedicated to exploring both what's new and what's good in the use of technology in teaching and learning. Our mission is to have the best minds sitting in front of our microphones, sharing evidence-based strategies for digital teaching and learning. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Thank you for joining us. And now, the Digital to Learn podcast. We are back today for the second part of our conversations with the authors of Thriving in Academia, those include Pam Ansberg. Hello. Mark Basham. Hi. And Regan Garung. Thanks, Brad. Glad to have all of you here with us. Let's get started. As you were describing those, those moments, those aha moments that you had about teaching, I, I was thinking about our colleagues who have tremendous training, knowledge, experience, but have never really been shown how to teach. So they may step into the classroom, they may love their students, but they don't have a clue how to communicate that knowledge to those students. And I'm guessing that's part of where your book came from. It, it, it is part of our book, although I will say, um, we definitely talk about teaching in the book. There are lots of uh, resources out there for teaching and teaching to, to undergraduates. And um, our book uh, also, we really wanted to hit all of the other parts of the job, right? Because um, it's not just the teaching, right? It is the advising, it's the service, it's the uh, politics within the department, it's um, time management, it's all of those other things that really you get no instruction on, right? Even if you got some teaching as part of your graduate program, um, you know, we all had some teaching experiences, um, certainly not enough training in that, um, but you really get literally no training in, in all of the other aspects of, of a job in academia at a teaching focused institution. Um, and so we really wanted to write the book that encompassed all of that. Yeah, I mean, when, we're, when you're in graduate school, we're getting a PhD, you're, all of your models, your advisor, they're all at research focused institution but you know they have to be and so seeing how they do their job doesn't actually uh, provide a good foundation for going to a teaching focused institution um, because it's a different job and so again like as mark said definitely we do discuss some things about how to teach and but more the focus is on how to balance that high teaching load with service scholarship um, all of the things that go into a teaching focused job. And I, and I think that's that's the magic here, Brad, is that I think we we try to keep it real, which is we're all passionate about teaching, but let's not forget those other things need to yes. happen as well. So how do we do all those things successfully? Hmm. So for, for listeners out there who, who maybe have a passion about teaching, how, how would they go about finding a teaching focused institution? How will they know? Yeah, well, I, I think first, I think firstly, I think we'd all be surprised, 
you know, very often the, the prototype of an institution is often an R1. But the reality is the absolute majority of institutions out there actually are teaching focused. So uh, part of the answer is you don't have to look too hard. I'm at a very in, uh, interesting institution. I love being at Oregon State where even though we are an R1 institution, the average teaching load is significantly higher than the other research ones. So there's a lot of teaching going on here. And uh, I think when I look around and at job ads, uh, the majority of the job applications are actually at teaching-focused institutions. One of the things we say in the book is a, a good place to start is to look at the mission statements for the particular institution. Um, Research-focused uh, institutions will have a research-focused mission statement that will say something like, you know, our mission is to uh, advance science, find cures for diseases. Um, Teaching-focused institutions will have a mission statement that references teaching. Um, and so that's a, a good place to start if, if you're not sure um, whether an institution views itself as a teaching-focused institution. I, your book includes strategies for obtaining scarce yet crucial resources, time, money, and mentors. What can you tell us about that? Well, these are all super important things in, in, in this kind of job. Um, and I think, um, you know, I'll, I'll let someone else take up the mentoring issue because that, that is probably the, the primary one to find somebody who can really help you um, or somebody's more than one who can help you through this process. Um, but the thing that I have been uh, most, I think most successful at is finding hidden stashes of money, which is a real, uh, imp really important thing to do because budgets are very tight, uh, typically at teaching focused institutions because we don't have the grant money. And so uh, one of the things, one of the tips that, that we give in the book is to ask faculty to sort of look around and see what, what their institution is focused on. You know, as as time passes, there are different priorities for institutions. And so if you're really tuned into what the priorities are for your institution, there's almost always a way to connect uh, your research or your teaching to those priorities or absolutely should be a way to do that since you're at that institution. And you can not be afraid to write proposals to administration um, showing how you can advance that goal and advance those priorities if they would just give you a little bit of money for your project. And I've been very successful at, at making those sorts of arguments, and I really encourage other people to do the same. So you'll hear a lot about there is no money, there's no extra money for this or that. A smart thing to do is to try to tie what it is you're trying to do to the priority of the institution and then make a compelling case for it. Yeah, I think related to that is is the notion of I mean, you know, you use three words there, the 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 time and the mentoring and and the resources, but I think the mentoring that that in many ways is one of the best places to start because the moment you have backup and you know, I like to think about finding your champion. If you find your champion, if that person's there for you, they can help you do all those things Pam talked about, you know. 
And more importantly, I think having that sounding board, and this person doesn't always have to be in your department or, or even on your campus for that matter. But I think that is so critical because it can be very isolating in higher education. Uh, and especially if you don't have tenure, very often it is, it's understandable to feel like you don't want to ask somebody with tenure because of how it would reflect on you. So finding that champion who'll go to bat for you and who will be there I think is really important. And that person will then help you find ways to carve up the time that will then make it easier for you to do all those things and find the resources. So those points are all really, really nicely connected. And I think if I were to say, where do you start? Finding that champion is, is one of the really good places to start. And I would also add that, that it's not just finding the champion, it's finding multiple champions. And those people can be in your department, outside your department, even outside of your institution. So what might you say to, to a colleague who loves teaching, loves the students, but is just feeling burnout by all of the other things that go on around them in the institution? What kind of things might they do to reinvigorate themselves? Uh, that, that's a great question. This is a conversation the three of us were having uh, on email yesterday. Um, <laughs> so it's very, it's very timely. Um, uh, it, I, there's no simple answer. Um, although one of the things that, that we were talking about is, uh, again, goes back to um, a sense of community, a sense of mentoring, um, mentoring and, and having the sort of social support, right? So um, part of feeling burnt out is feeling isolated, right? Feeling like um, you, you don't have enough time or energy to do all of the work. Um, you start to devalue your own contributions and your own accomplishments. Um, and you start to feel sort of like you're on an island and really reaching out to your support networks and to your colleagues um, and to your mentors and your mentees and, and really solidifying those sort of social support networks can really help with that burnt out, um, at least the emotional side of it. Mm -hmm. I think that's great advice. And that's, you know, sort of looking outward and looking for support outside of yourself. But I also think that one way to help with a burnout that I know that I use myself is to look inside and really spend some time uh, figuring out what my, what is it that makes me want to do this job? What are my goals? What are the th things that I love about the job? Reflect on those really deeply and then use that as a way to prune away other things that I don't want to do. So what can I, you know, I still obviously will need to keep my job. I can't prune everything away, but being able to focus um, on what it is that, that really drew me to, to the job to begin with and then finding ways to elevate that above all of the rest of the noise. So looking outward is important to find that support and then looking inward to find out what, what drew you to begin with and find, find your way back to that. It is going to call for making some firm decisions. Uh, Mark mentioned an email from yesterday. Let me mention an, an email conversation I had with Pam uh, 15 years ago, uh, circa 2009, uh, approximately. Uh, and Pam and I had a chat about all the different things we were doing. And I can remember, I still remember, there was this point when Pam made this very conscious decision to cut down on how much she accesses email, 
on the weekends. It's that kind of stuff where you think, and Mark may get, you didn't, may not have even, you know, but yeah, there was this particular point where it's like, here is one thing I can do to give myself more bandwidth. And, you know, I said that was, you know, 2009-ish. Over the last three years, I think even those of us who thought we were getting by have been needed to pull in more and more things to make sure that bandwidth is is maintained or safeguarded because the accumulating wear and tear, higher education has always been stressful over the last two years in particular, that accumulated wear and tear as we sit here in 2022. Uh, we need to face it. And we're psychologists, you know, we're, we're not just, you know, educators, we're psychologists. That's basic psychology is the human body as wonderful and resilient as it may be can only go so far if you don't put very explicit changes in place. And I think inherent in your description of mentors, it seems like mentors don't necessarily have to come from within your own institution. You can have mentors in your discipline from other places or people you connect with at conferences or have have like interests one of the things we say in our book is that um you know a good way to find a mentor is to find somebody who's been successful at the thing you want to do right um and, and then reach out to that person and oftentimes that person might not be in your department or your institution right um but when you find somebody who you know has accomplished the things you want to accomplish, um, that's a good place to start looking uh, for somebody who can sort of lead the way for you. Mm. And I think I think Pam's observation too about reflection is probably something that all of us do too little of. I don't have time for that. I've, I've got to get this done. I'm going on to the next thing. But kind of reflecting on where we are in our careers, our practices, our relationships. Uh, things outside of our job, spending time thinking about those things as well. So Regan mentioned the last two years in, in higher ed, and, and they have been very unique. So looking ahead, what, what are some of your predictions about where higher ed might be going in the next 10 years? And we will hold you accountable for these, just so you know. These are, these are, yeah, these are, it's a, it's a tough question. It's a tough question to think about. Um, you know, I, I, I think about uh, when I started teaching, I think when all of us started teaching, email was just starting to be a thing that people used. And I remember getting annoyed at no longer seeing students in person. Students didn't come to office hours to ask the simple question, right? They emailed and, and I remember feeling like this is not a good, a good uh, thing that's happening here. It's not a good development where we're losing that connection, you know, and then obviously we started to have uh, online teaching and then now Zoom and um, you know, I started to realize that really as long as whatever the next technological thing is that we're going to do, um, as long as we continue to try to focus on using that technology to focus on building the relationship with the student. So just like mentoring uh, is great for professionals, I feel like that's the center of what a teaching professor does is a mentor. And um, as long as we keep 
centering that and that relationship between the students and the faculty, uh, it, it doesn't really matter what will happen. I think things will evolve and change um, in, in lots of ways, but that core has to continue to be the focus. And I think it will be because of the people who are drawn into the field. Mm. Yeah, I get this, I, I get this question a lot about what's the future of higher ed and, and the predictions of the, the, the demise of higher ed. And I've been hearing this, you know, since I was a, an undergraduate student that higher education <laughs> is, is on the decline and on the way out. And, um, you know, at, at its core, you know, we help people become fully formed humans, right? And there's always going to be a need for that. And that can't be an individual process. That's always going to take a community. And it's always going to take, uh, whether you call it an instructor or a professor or a mentor or whatever, um, you know, since there have been humans, there have been people who have been doing this part um, of human development. And so I, I agree with Pam um, I think technology will change and it will advance, but at its core, the relationships between uh, professors uh, and students, you know, will persist. Uh, I think that, you know, higher ed will continue to exist uh, in one form or another for hundreds more years. And I'm going to pick up on the word humans. I think over time, higher ed has forgotten about the fact that educators and students are human. We focus so much on learning outcomes, good, good reason. We focus on instructional methods. We focus on assessment, accreditation. But we forget about the fact that we're all humans. And one of the things that the pandemic has forced us to consider is that humans can only go so far without attention being paid to their humanness. And I think we need to pay more attention to humanness. And the way I'm going to translate that into a vision for higher education changes is that we need to capitalize on different modalities of teaching, right? It doesn't just have to be one certain way. We can use technologies in different ways. And I think we can also and should capitalize on the potential for remote working and not just remote learning, remote working. I think that goes back to paying attention to the human, where there's so much to be gained from affording uh, our uh, educators some flexibility in where and how they teach and do their work from, whether it's research or teaching or service. And I think uh, with a lot of the remote working we saw, we, we saw the big benefits of that. Uh, and I think all of that goes back to, yeah, let's pay attention to the humanness, to the people, to the motivations, to the to the psychology of it all, uh, and beyond just paying attention to courses and outcomes and and assessment. Yeah, Regan, I think I think you're dead on. and and I think about my sort of trajectory over this uh, from the beginning of this pandemic until now, you know that that first semester, I had established relationships with my students, and then we pivoted to uh, remote learning, and it went pretty well, considering, um, but I think that was because I'd already established the relationships. And then, you know, the following semester was the first semester that I had started fully uh, online and remote, and honestly, it didn't go very well. I, I never figured out how to establish those relationships, and unfortunately, uh, the pandemic persisted, and um, with lots of support from colleagues and 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 the professional organizations, 
uh, we all sort of dug into, okay, if we're going to teach uh, in these new ways, if we're going to use technology, um, then we have to figure out how to use it well and how to uh, build relationships. And I think we all got better at that. I know I did. And so then I had you know, a semester, um, yet another semester uh, of online teaching where I was pretty good at building those relationships and, and leveraging the technology. And I'm, I'm fortunate now I'm back in person and, and sort of have left that technology behind for teaching and I'm doing traditional in-person instruction and hopefully I'll remember how to make those relationships now in person. But yeah, it's been an interesting, fast, wild ride through the last couple of years. We, we think it's an important book. I mean, what didn't come out, but one of the sort of other driving forces of this is, um, you know, we all, I mean, Pam said this a little bit, right? We all had... Uh, you know, younger colleagues, right? Colleagues that are new to it, um, you know, coming to us uh, to be their mentors, right? Asking us, um, you know, how do you how do you manage this? How do you manage your time? How do you get scholarship done? All of these questions, and um, you know, we started thinking instead of sharing that one on one with a handful of uh, new colleagues, you know, maybe we should write a book and and then you know help more than just the handful that that wander into our offices. So. We're hoping somebody buys the book. <laughs> we'll see. I, I imagine there'll be a few. I, I think this would be a great resource for a new faculty orientation experience. Yeah. Oh, exactly. absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And and I and I think you know very earlier on, Mark, I like I liked how you picked up on the fact that as much as we are all passionate teachers at a teaching focused institution, it's not just the teaching, you're still asked to do those other things, right? right? And balancing that, you know, is the key. And that's what I see. That's what I see new faculty struggle with, right? Um, you know, they, they, they underestimate the teaching load 100%, right? And, and that bogs them down the first couple of years. But they really don't even know how to do um, the rest of the job, right? They don't, they don't know how to be a good committee member, um, they don't know how to, they, they do advising, you know, the training we get for doing academic advising, uh, you know, somebody hands you a, a one page sheet of degree requirements and says, start scheduling meetings with students, you know, it's, it's ridiculous, so. I think connecting the dots between the three of you in, in terms of your comments today, there are themes about um, teaching as a relationship oriented practice. And then the other thing that, that seemed to be a theme across the three of you was the fact that each of you are perpetual learners in different ways, but you're always looking at what you do and how you could get better at it. So I so appreciate your, your insights today. And for those of you who are listening, um, whether you're just thinking about going into higher ed or whether you've been doing this for 25 years, there are some tremendous gems in this book, Thriving in Academia, building a career at a teaching-focused institution. So Mark, Regan, Pam, thank you so much for being with us today on Digital to Learn. Thank you, thank Brad, you. it was a pleasure. Thank you for having us. Thank you for joining us on Digital to Learn. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are three things we ask you to do. One, come back and join us again. Two, tell your friends about us. And three, give us a positive ranking on your favorite podcast platform. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Embrace the future. Always keep learning.